0: nice to have a friend of mine, Gene Nichols, with us tonight. He and I went to school together a hundred years ago, we won't <laughs> tell anybody, but it's always good to have him come in and, and uh, I think the last time you were here you had your wife and she's on home to heaven herself and uh, as Brother Clyber lost your sister today, I'm so sorry, but uh, I remember my mother used to say of us, we had 12 children running around in the little town of Irwin, many many years ago and and she used to say to us younger ones and she couldn't keep track of all of us and she said i want you all back at the house at eight o'clock <laughs> every time i think of someone going home to heaven i think of them just going on back to the house <laughs> so they just went back to the house we'll join them one of these days very very soon <clears throat> good to always have reverend mr bank they're just the finest and uh they're very enduring, they'll come and hear me every chance uh, they can, uh, not as often as I'd like, but nevertheless, he's busy himself. But it's nice to see you both with us. You know, uh, <clears throat> I have to tell you, there's a lot of things that go through my mind, and particularly in recent days, and particularly when you come to a last service. Uh, I find it to be a very serious service. I think I'd like to leave behind something that will sort of encourage you on the one hand, build your faith on the other hand, I realize that uh, we reach an age where we don't know whether this will be the last time we see each other or not. But it well could be. And if it is, I'd like to know that I've done my best. I told my wife some time ago, I think I know what I'd like to preach my last sermon, but I don't know if I'll know when that last one is, so I guess I won't know. So I hope this isn't my last one, because it's not what I would preach. But I would like to share, I, I'm going to be preaching toward my text tonight. You'll understand more when we come to the close why I chose this text than maybe initially as I start. But if you have your Bibles this evening, I'd like for you to open with me in the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians, of course, is a sort of a partner book with the book of Romans. In fact, when you study Romans, you usually study Galatians alongside Romans. It's the only letter that Paul writes that he does not give any words of commendation to the church. In fact, he jumps on them with both feet. Oh, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, and on and on. What's taking place is the church has moved out of Judaism into the Christian faith, and the Jews looked at them and said, It's okay to be a Christian, but you better be a Jew first. And by that, they were trying to impose the law of physical circumcision, the law of Moses, on them. And Paul was telling them it's not the physical, it's the circumcision of the heart that is important. And he was trying to remedy this problem. But would you like to stand if you could? If you don't, you remain uh, seated. But I'm going to read just three verses found in Galatians chapter 6, the very last chapter of the letter very familiar law that is pronounced here. In verse 7, you could quote it almost with me, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. I want to focus primarily on that last statement. I want to speak primarily to those two words, due season. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Father, thank you for what we have enjoyed thus far. The service, thank you for... The songs that have been sung, thank you for the admonitions that have been given, the exhortations for the prayers. Thank you, Lord, for the fellowship of the saints. And Now we thank you, Lord, for the inspired word, the word upon which you breathe, that we might receive life from it to sustain us and keep us until one day you welcome us back at the house. We love you, Jesus, and we realize that our citizenship is of a better country. And we're moving like pilgrims toward that inevitable moment. Bless us together this one more time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I uh, have my uh, sermons entitled. As I develop them, I title them only so I can catalog them for my sake. I seldom give a title. But just for this Moment, I'd like to talk to you about the fact that the due season is rapidly approaching all of us. Due season is rapidly approaching. Time is God's appointed era for man's salvation. I'm not going to develop it tonight. I think I might have done somewhat before one other time when I was with you. And by the way, I always know what I've done. I can tell you every sermon I've preached almost 50 years, where I preached it and what I preached. So if you happen to see sometimes a scripture that you wrote my name aside, let me tell you, there's more than one sermon can be brought out of that scripture. I know where I am. But I say that because time is an interesting study. It has a meaning and a movement and a measure to it. But I don't want to go into that. We just know that we're creatures of time right now. This thing we call time is the little island in the vast sea of eternity because eternity preceded it. Eternity will follow it. And right now we're on this little island or this little parenthesis in eternity we call time. It was started and created by the hand of God. But one day, as John tells us in the 10th chapter of the Revelation, the angel will herald over land and sea, and time shall be no more. And when that occurs, of course, all that shall follow will be eternity. Perhaps knowing that, we ought to give more consideration to our day book than we do our checkbook. I can assure you, you may lose a little money that you might be able to recover, but every moment of time you lose is is not possible recoverable or retrievable. And whenever we realize it's the most precious commodity we have, we understand why Paul would tell us in the Ephesian letter, redeem the time for the days are evil. In other words, it's so important the psalmist said, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. I uh, have far exceeded my threescore and 10 years. And I have an idea there's a few of you that's far succeeded the three score and ten years of life that God has sort of assured us in a measure as being an average. But I want you to note, I want to make sure when I come to the close of this earthly life that I have made the proper preparations for what he has called me to do. Dr. Dennis Kinlaw, one of the great Hebrew scholars in heaven tonight, He told me one day that man does not walk face forward into the future. He said, in fact, we stumble backwards into the future, and while we can see the yesteryears very well, we cannot see our tomorrows. So he said we have to put our hand of faith in the hand of the one that holds the future. And that one, of course, is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Mankind is divided really into two groups. There are those who keep step with the times and march towards God's ultimate goal. And then there's a vast number who know not the time of their visitation and are forever left behind. In fact, if you remember, Israel failed to enter into the promised land, and they wept in Babylon for 70 years because they missed the time of their visitation. We just came out of Easter, and you know that the Jewish nation missed the day of their Messiah. Even up until this very moment, many of them are still looking for the Messiah, and they've been scattered like the autumn leaves in in a blast of wind. Uh, Way back in the beginning of, of creation, when God made the heavens and the earth, and whenever he made this world and finally created man out of the dust of the ground and his wife out of his side... And then he gave to Adam the dominion over all that his hands had made, and all the permissions of the garden which were manifold. There was one prohibition. He said to Adam, all this is yours to have dominion over. He was sort of a vice regent under God. He said, there is one tree in the midst of the garden. He said, I don't want you to eat of it. He said, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, he didn't have to go into any explanation because he was truth, his word, he was God. And so knowing that, one day Eve, of course, got associating with the serpent, of course, who was under the guise, Satan under the guise of serpent. And the serpent looked at Eve and said, "Yea, has God said you can eat of all the trees of the garden? The very question, by the way, is the first question you'll find in the Bible. And it came from Satan himself, and the very question is inciting in the mind of man that God is unfair and unjust. And as a result, he questioned the sovereignty of God. But he not only questioned and challenged the sovereignty of God, he challenged the severity of God. Because God said, in the day that you eat thereof, you'll die. But he said, thou shalt not surely die. I'm telling you that quickly because he was insinuating, if you do, you'll become as God, knowing good and evil. And in that statement, he insinuates that knowledge is more important than loving obedience. Knowledge, he says, is more important. He offered man knowledge and power, but he reduced him to ignorance and poverty. Man prides himself, even to this very day, as being some kind of a mental giant, when in reality he's a moral infant, so much so that there's a huge gap that has brought the human race now to the brink of an abyss so dark and deep that no mortal eye can plumb the depths of it, and we're facing it every day of our lives. In fact, man's knowledge, I was recently reading, Man's knowledge in the last 50 years has advanced further than the former 500 years. But the interesting thing is the knowledge has not increased in such things as literature or law or philosophy or theology or medicine. The knowledge has advanced in the realm of power and force and motion. Man's knowledge has so surpassed his wisdom until he's afraid of what he knows. You remember the Bible said that they would come when man's hearts would be failing them with what they see coming on the earth. The measure of a man as God made him is not how much he knows. Rather, it's what he loves. And you know that love comes wholly from God. God has a purpose and a plan for every person's life. Not only for here, but for hereafter. In fact, what we do here determines what we do hereafter. And he treats man on the basis of a two-world program, both time and eternity. You know, uh, when I say this, that God has a purpose for every person's life, I say man, and I'm using that in the generic sense, male and female. When he has a purpose for every man's life, there's something I think is very shocking. God has a purpose for your life, uniquely you. You alone can fulfill the purpose that God has for you. No one can fill that purpose. If we fail to walk in the light of God and fill the purpose, it cannot be replaced by someone else. It will forever remain empty. That's shocking. I think of that because all of us, one time or another, somebody went down in deep travail for our souls. Somebody prayed for you. Somebody prayed for me. That's why Paul says, I'm a debtor to give this gospel in the same measure as I've received it. It was someone that spoke to Paul, you remember. Someone that guided him. and Ananias laid hands on him. And he says, I'm a debtor to this gospel. Well, I can tell you, I am as well. It's only as one lives in the will of God and obeys the word of God that he'll be able to fulfill the purpose of God in this world. And when he fills that purpose, immediately, we recognize that we are not sufficient in ourselves. Immediately, we realize we need Christ in every facet of our being. There is only one indispensable person that ever walked on the top side of this earth. His name is Jesus. No other one, no other one is indispensable only Jesus and we read that by the way in John 15 remember about the vine Jesus says without me you can do nothing if you go to Philippians 4 he says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me did you notice the difference between nothing and all things is Christ without me you can do nothing but I can do all things through Christ I mentioned to you a moment ago that this world the conquest of this world, time, is this whole matter of, or of, of, uh, life, is a whole matter of time. Time is our probation preparation for eternity. What we weave in time, we will wear throughout eternity. Alfred Lloyd Tennyson made the statement, don't let the little hills of time hide from us the mountains of eternity had a way of saying things that I think spoke so succinctly. Don't become so enamored with the passing world that's going to melt and be like, as, as Peter said, dissolved like fervent heat one of these days like a fist of dirt into an ocean. Don't let that cloud the eternal that's awaiting for each one of us. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus one day, preaching it, urged his disciples to put the time test to questionable things. He said, you can determine the false and the true by their fruits. By their fruits, you shall know them. But I want you to notice, he didn't say by their early blossoms. He said, by their fruit, you shall know them. I notice, even in the spring here, the, uh, in the early time of the spring, even a thistle has a beautiful purple blossom. <laughs> but I can assure you how different that is when it becomes a ripened weed. So you see, he's not saying, don't just judge somebody of the blossom. Time is involved when they move from the blossom to the fruit. It's a process that brings the true nature to service. He also spoke, if you remember in that same sermon about two buildings and how time would reveal the worth and the wisdom of the one who builds on what materials, whether it be the rock or the sand. He said, time will determine which one was wise and which one was foolish time always reveals the things that we're going to see in fruition because it will reveal the basic quality of man's character time will cause either the fruit of righteousness or the seed of iniquity to ripen in the soul there was a great old baptist preacher years ago down in memphis tennessee and for some reason i'm drawing a blank as to calling his name but i'll never forget him telling that a Somebody was sort of mocking the fact that he was speaking of the urgency of coming to know Christ early in life. Don't wait till your midlife. Don't wait till old age. He said, "The earliest, the better." And the man said to him, "So I'm I'm 50 years old, and nothing's ever happened to me, and I'm doing okay. Why are you worried about me?" And he simply looked at him, and he said, "Payday, someday." Whatsoever a man sows, he will reap. That's a law. We know that law very, very well. In fact, time always unveils that which is hidden. It wears off the paint, if you please, or sheds the veneer and lays bare the inner quality of one's soul. Now, that brings me really to my text. As time continues to ebb, He is admonishing us not to grow weary in well-doing because God's promise of a rich harvest to all well-doers who labor without fainting. As in nature, so in grace. Uh, We are facing it this summer or spring. Between seed time and harvest, a farmer faces a season of toil and hope. Uh, They have to battle the winds The floods, if you please, the drought, the insect. That is not only true of seed time and harvest, it's also true in grace between sowing and reaping, we will experience the test of time. And you and I are going to go through those testing times and have gone through those testing times, and we'll be tested, we'll be tempted. We'll be tested by prosperity. Sometimes wealth isn't a a good thing to bring us to God. Sometimes it can become a, 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 a log around your neck. Adversity of all kind. The Bible teaches all who live godly shall suffer. Suffer persecution. Why? Because Jesus learned obedience himself through the things he suffered. First Peter is a letter that I think deals almost exclusively with this whole matter of Christian suffering. And he speaks of the dynamic of suffering, but he also speaks of the duration of suffering. And so we're all going to have to face a certain measure of suffering, but he said, after that you have suffered a while, that's the duration. That's speaking of this thing called time. After you've suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Every time I read that, I think about that little One little s, suffering, is the account of three big S's. If we suffer, he will establish, he'll strengthen us, and he will settle us. As we walk with Jesus in this world as creatures of time, the Apostle Paul uses Romans 8.28 to encourage us. We know it by heart all things work together for good to them that love God and are the called according to his purpose. But you know, sometimes we read these promises and don't ask enough questions. If all things do work together, then what are the all things he's talking about? All things? Well, if you know anything about Romans, you know in Romans 8, it's that great freedom chapter, and it begins with no condemnation. There's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. And it ends with no separation. What can separate us from the love of God? And he lists a whole number of things that cannot separate us. But I want you to notice in the first part of the chapter 8, Paul gives at least a dozen different aspects of the things of the Spirit. He speaks of the law of the Spirit. He speaks of walking in the Spirit. He speaks about the indwelling Spirit. He speaks about the uh, uh, witness of the Spirit, the mind of the Spirit, the leading of the Spirit. You can count them sometimes. You go home, just read Romans 8, and you'll see all these things of the Spirit. But by the time he comes down to the end of that same chapter, he speaks of at least that many things of suffering. What shall separate us? Suffering, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. So you have two things that he's talking about, the things of the spirit and the things of suffering. And he's telling us very candidly that the things of the spirit within, along with the things of the suffering without, are the chisel and mallet that God uses to conform us to his image. Now, that's not a very pleasant testimony, (laughs) but I can tell you God knows what he's saying to us, and he doesn't hide anything from us. I used to hear people talk about how do we know the Bible's true, and how do you know it's inspired of God? Well, let me tell you one way I know. No man would ever write a book condemning himself, I can assure you of that, and this book has done that. And so I have no no trouble wondering whether this word is God's word. He is admonishing us to be willing and faithful to bear the heat and the burden of the day if we're going to be glad reapers. Now, I keep emphasizing and wanting you to think we're coming and approaching rapidly this due season when we're going to reap. We are all sowing. We're all building a house all the time. The fruit of the seed, And the durability of the house is determinative of one's character. He that obeyeth, observeth the wind, shall not sow. He that regardeth the clouds shall not weep. And God says we must guard our lives and not allow the winds of opposition or the clouds of adversity to weary us. We must be faithful by the grace of God and the grace that will sustain that we sang about tonight all of us, in due season. If we make the tree of life good, you'll never have to be ashamed of its fruit. If you build life on the rock of ages, you won't have to fear the storms. You know, when you talk about time, there's something called the relativity of time. Uh, You and I face it, we may not, recognize at the moment, but for example, I've had to do it, you've had to do it. You sit in a hospital, for example, and you know somebody's approaching their crisis hour, and you're wondering how long is it going to be, how long will they have to suffer, how long, how long, and you look at your watch, and it looks like it's, oh, five after nine, let's say, and you're sitting there waiting, 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 and you think, oh, it's been at least an hour. You look at it again, it's 20 after 9. And this relativity of time, sorrow has a way of, of stretching seconds until they seem like hours. On the other hand, there's the opposite that is true. Joy has a way of making hours seem like seconds. You're enjoying what you're doing, you're with your family, having a reunion, whatever it is, you've been planning for it for some time and all of a sudden it comes and it goes so quickly and you say, time just flew. It's a relativity of time. It's interesting. This text is not altogether a warning and I'm not approaching it from that standpoint tonight. It's an encouragement to you and me. We're living in a world that's no friend of God or grace. We're living in a on the edge where oblivion could occur. Let me tell you, man has more destructive devices than we can handle. And we certainly don't have the wisdom to know. When you think of what's going on in Washington, D.C., whatever your politics are, it's the most diabolical, evil stuff taking place in our country that we've never seen before. Right. And we may be the only bastion of, of Christianity the world's ever known. And we may be finding ourselves falling. He's warning and encouraging, warning the wicked and encouraging the saint. Don't grow weary in well-doing. You may not think you're winning, but you're on the winning side. <laughs> it may look like you're losing the battle, but you, we've already won. We just come through the victory of Easter. We're on the winning side, folks. Because if one follows Human philosophy, which teaches the purpose of life is to live to the fulfillment of one's own achievement. I won't tell you where it is, but I see it oftentimes. Maybe I talk, my wife and I, I talk to her too many, too much about some of the stuff. But I, it's amazing the homes we build. Came a home, came by a home tonight. I could put five families in that thing. Why would we want such a home? Did you ever hear people talk about, oh, he's trying to establish his legacy? What are we talking about? I'll tell you, if you live to find fulfillment in your own personal achievements, you'll reap the same reward that the rich man reached in Luke chapter 16. Lift up his eyes, being in torments, he called out to Father Abraham, Oh, let Lazarus dip his finger in water and touch my tongue, for I am tormented in this plain. And God looked at him, Father Abraham, and said, uh, Remember, thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things? Now thou art tormented. I've often thought about that passage. There's no question this man was probably on the board of every bank there was in the country. He was a rich man, fared sumptuously every day. He had more than he could use never shared any of it. Poor Laz was carried like an animal to his doorstep and ate the food that fell from his table. Mistreated, abused. And I'm sure whenever that rich man died, they must have had all kinds of men and women come in and give accolades about this man. Oh, what a great board member, what a great... Philanthroper, he might have been, and on and on and on. But what they didn't know, while they were giving all those applause and those accolades, he was writhing in the lostness in the regions of the damned. I don't know if we understand that. Lazarus. Lazarus. <laughs> it's interesting. He knew Lazarus by name. But he just talked to the rich man. I want him to know my name. I want him to write my name on the palm of his hand. Doesn't make any difference if everybody in this world forgets me. I don't want him to forget me. (laughs) The unwary pilgrim. Movement of time is not merely passing by. We talk about time passing, time passing, not to, the, not to the Christian man. It's rather what I would call the purposes of God coming to full ripening stand. Not just passing, the purposes of God are ripening. We are rapidly approaching that blessed day of reaping. Not going to be long now. If we continue as faithful laborers and grow not weary, we will return with our sheaves. And when we do, we'll lift our glad voices in praise and to the Lord of the harvest. I just see it this terrible season when the farmers want to get into their fields and some of them already have planted and going to have to replant and all that's going on. All the suffering they have to go through in order to ultimately have a harvest. Folks, it's so in our lives. We don't know what we're going to face, and some of us have faced things we don't like. But I'm going to tell you, he's saying to us, don't grow weary. Hold steady. He's keeping the score. He'll have the final word. He's the first. He's the last. He's the alpha. He's the omega. He's the first cause. He's the center. He's the final conclusion. And one of these days, he's going to say, it is well, come home, back to the house. I don't wanna miss that. And I guess what I'm trying to say to you, if you prepare for eternity, you won't have to be embarrassed when it opens up to you if you make the preparations here. Our hereafter (coughs) is determined by what we go after here. When I said to you a moment ago, God deals with us on two bases, Time and eternity. It's so tragic to me that some have the idea, well, I'm going to live my life now and I'll I'll take care of that when that time comes. No, 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 you don't. That's not the way it works. Because when that time comes, you'll be unprepared. In other words, he who lives for one world at a time will be a failure in both of those worlds. We live here in time anticipating that which is yet to come, living with eternity in our hearts. And I'm glad that we can do that. And by the way, I've never found life here nearly as enjoyable with, without Christ as it was with Christ. I was only a young teenager when I first found God, but I can tell you I never knew anything about God. I was 15 years of age before I ever knew I had to be born again. I don't remember going to church, don't remember preachers coming to our house, don't remember any of that, but I can tell you, as many of you have faced tragic ends, I faced it, and I can remember as a teenage lad that a tragedy hit our home when my sister died under the wheels of my father's automobile, and my, at 15 years of age, I had only one thing I asked myself, where is she now? What happens to somebody who walk out of the back door of time into the front door of eternity? What happens? I didn't know. I had no idea. All I knew, and by the way, death is as common as birth. All I knew was she wouldn't be at the dinner table. I couldn't say goodnight to her again. She wouldn't meet me at the bus when I got off of the bus. All I knew is I'd never see her again. And I've never forgotten that. But God knew where I was. And he knew who I needed and what I needed. And I sat in three services of a small church, a little Nazarene church in a place called Kennard, Ohio. And the preacher preached. And the third time, I came down to the altar and I met Jesus. I'll tell you how dumb you can be and get no Jesus. I didn't know how to pray. I didn't know what to do. In fact, when I came to the altar, the rail went clear to the wall, and I was so introverted, I, was, I didn't know what to do, and I hid my head in the corner. And a gut man was praying next to me, and he said just two things. You see, I'm glad God knows the heart. I said, God, he said, Lord, I'm sorry for my sins. I said, I am. I didn't know what all that meant, but I knew it was bad. And he said, Jesus, come into my heart. I said, that's what I want you to do. And I walked up out of that church. I was not the same young man. I didn't have Christian mom and dad go home and talk to me about it. I had to go home to where they used profanity and anger and hate and grief and all that. But I can tell you, God can keep you no matter if you live next door to hell and have the devil for a roommate, he can keep you. And I used to read my Bible in a closet that the church gave me, and I never wanted to miss service. I wanted to make sure I was in every service. Four weeks later, I realized there was something deeper down and further back. We call it the doctrine of entire sanctification, the Church of the Nazarene, the Church of Christ and Christian Union. We talk about being filled with the Spirit of the baptism of the Spirit, whatever you want to term it. All I know is there was something lacking in my faith. And I came the second time, as the old hymn writer said, for cleansing from the inbred sin, and he filled me. And for 61 years, I have walked with him. I wouldn't change one day for the previous 15 years I found Jesus. Can I say to you, if we prepare for eternity, time will not nor cannot embarrass us. Let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season, it's coming, due season for many, it's already come. It's coming for me. That's why every time I preach anymore, I preach like a dying man to a dying man. Because I don't know how long I've got. I go back to places now where many people I used to preach to are already in heaven. There's more there than there of those I know that are even here. I told my wife, in evangelism, man, it's a lonesome road out here. All these evangelists i worked with and pastors I've worked with, they died or retired or something. I don't see them anymore. And then I realized that's what's going to happen to me. That's what's going to happen to you. But the fact is we're at the short end of something getting bigger and better. (laughs) As they say, you ain't seen nothing yet. I'm just trying to tell you, don't grow weary in well-doing. For we're going to reap soon, and we don't want to miss it, do we? Are you ready to go to heaven? Are you planned on going to heaven? I can tell you, you don't want to play fast and lose and say, well, I hope things go. You know, we have this what they call autosatiric religion. You know what that is? It's, well, if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, I'll get to heaven. All right. No, 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 no. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What do I do with Jesus? I have to do something with him. He's the only Savior that you and I have, but He's enough. <laughs> he's the El Shaddai. He is the enough God in me. He? He's more than enough for what you need. Would you stand with me tonight?